Tech Talk. Tech Talk. With Jess Kelly. With One Sonic. High definition audio wireless earphones and headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. This is News Talk. Welcome to Tech Talk, Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, Kira O'Brien will look back at the week that was for Facebook. Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids will talk about standing up to cyberbullying and we'll hear from the team behind Concept Dairy. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Now, there was only one story in Tech Town this week and that was Facebook. Between the outage on Monday and the whistleblower on Tuesday, Mark Zuckerberg's company dominated the headlines. Business and tech reporter with the Irish Times, Kira O'Brien, joins us now. Kira, let's start with the outage. At what point did you realise that this outage was different to the ones that have come before? I think fairly early on because we realised first off that this was more widespread than anything we'd seen before. Um, I think for for anybody who lives under a rock and who didn't know what actually happened, so shortly after about half four on the 4th of October, basically Instagram, Facebook, Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp all went down. Now, like most people, I, I assumed it was my internet connection when I couldn't connect to WhatsApp because, you know, Facebook isn't a huge part of my my working day, but WhatsApp would be... You know, obviously that that's the, the the method of of choice for a lot of people when they're sending messages. So I, like most people, opened up WhatsApp, saw the little connecting thing at the top, assumed it was something to do with my uh, Facebook or my internet connection. Tried Wi-Fi, tried the whole lot, and then it just realized that you know there was something else going on, and it became quickly apparent that it was across all three of the the, the Facebook main services, and that this was a bigger problem than we had thought. I mean, usually when things go down, it's usually resolved fairly quickly. It's usually maybe people in a certain area, they're kind of, you know, you might be located, uh, say maybe people in Ireland or people in Europe are having a problem, but people in the US are not. So, you know, it, the fact that it was so many people, it seemed to be, it, it was became quickly apparent that it was a global problem, that we had a serious issue here. And more to the point, Facebook had a serious issue. And, you know, immediately the conspiracy theory started flying. I saw a few people speculate that it was related to the whistleblower, that maybe this was something that, you know, was trying to take attention away from everything um, that was going on at the moment. There was also people speculating that it was potentially a cyber attack, that Facebook was being targeted uh, possibly because of the whistleblower revelations but also just you know because Facebook is so big now I think it's interesting that we all noticed it basically affected a lot of people it made headlines everywhere and it was a six-hour outage for any other private company you know I mean maybe with the exception of Google or Microsoft you know that this wouldn't be a six-hour outage it's inconvenient but would it make quite as a bigger splash in in the headlines as this one clearly did. And it shows how reliant we've become day to day on Facebook uh, and its services because all of a sudden people just couldn't work. Um, And that included the people in Facebook. Apparently, I I saw compared to a snow day for Facebook because while it was inconvenient for me because I I had to, oh my God, I had to go back to, to... sending regular text messages or, you know, sending emails, you know, which a lot of people, it's kind of fallen out of, of use. So, you know, obviously at the first thing is everybody is a bit kind of, you know, what do we do here? And then we realize we have to go back to email. 
Um, but for if you're working in Facebook, I mean, there was reports of people being locked out of buildings because internal systems weren't working. Um, there was, you know, obviously then there was, a, there was obviously an issue going on, but to, to, to fix that, they had to send a team of engineers to a data center in California to get into, into it because they couldn't do it remotely. Because once Facebook systems were down, all of their systems were down and that meant their internal ones too. So they couldn't do any work. Yeah, it was the perfect storm. Um, we did get a bit of clarity from Facebook later on as to what exactly went wrong. Can you just explain what their explanation said and what exactly it means? Well, their explanation, I mean, obviously at the start, we weren't getting a huge amount of detail from Facebook as to what was going on. They were acknowledging there was a problem. As the day wore on, there was uh, various experts weighing in on what was actually going on. And the easiest thing I saw... The easiest way I saw it explained was um, it's like the map has been thrown away. So you, if you're going on a road trip, you don't you know where you're going, but you don't know how to get there. You start in one place, your destination is another, and you have the map that shows you what's the quickest way to get to your final destination. It was like the final destination. All that stuff was still there. Facebook.com was still there. You know, Instagram was still there, but the map to show show the the networks how to route the traffic to them had been thrown away. So it was just kind of going round and round in circles and uh, basically returning an error. So the the explanation was a faulty configuration change. Now, the issue, the reason why it was such a big deal for Facebook is because they control all that stuff, that all those, those maps they actually have in their control. So when that got thrown out, they had no way to do anything internally themselves. You know, so basically all of Facebook was gone. It was like Facebook didn't exist on the internet as far as all those network traffic routes were concerned. Which is not ideal, to put it mildly. Um, this led to a number of really interesting conversations. And again, this is all before we get to the whistleblower. Mark Zuckerberg took to his own Facebook page and posted an internal memo sent to staff. And he started off by saying, like, the outage wasn't great, but it reminded us just how much people rely on our products. And yes, that is one strand of it. But in my head, it just reinforced how big and how, I suppose, monopolized certain parts of the Internet are by Facebook. And it made me think, geez, maybe Facebook really should be broken up so that we don't have this issue again where huge sections of the Internet, because there are some parts of the world where Facebook and the Internet are synonymous. So there was parts of the world that were completely offline because of this. What did you make of that? Did you think that that it kind of showed that Facebook is great or does it kind of, you know, reinforce the argument that maybe Facebook needs to be broken up? I think it's actually for a lot of people um, has reinforced the argument that it's time for, for Facebook maybe to be broken up. And that there's been a shift towards that in the US. Um, there, there has been a lot of talk about the power of big tech and whether or not these uh, these entities need to be broken up. And I think, look, it was it was an inconvenience for, for a lot of us, but it showed just how much power that Facebook has over our daily lives. And if you're a, if you're a retailer and you do your business on Instagram, you know, and you have a shop linked to Instagram, all of a sudden, you know, you're you're not getting the same amount of customers. But even say for the likes of like the average person, okay, so forget about business because you know that that's another thing altogether. And most people are only concerned with you know how it affects them personally. For a lot of people, they would have used something like Facebook to log into a lot of different services. So maybe when you set up a Spotify account, you logged in with your Facebook or you saw 
signed up with your Facebook account. So you don't have to remember 20 different passwords. Now, there's obviously there's there's a problem there in that, you know, if somebody gets access to your account, they have access to everything. But a lot of people will do that. You know, they will use Facebook or they will use Google or they'll use Apple to sign up to these services. If you used Facebook to sign up to services on on the, the 4th of October for those six hours, couldn't access those either. So that showed you know, that it probably for a lot of people, it's time to start decoupling Facebook from your daily life. Now, a lot of people after the last kind of WhatsApp drama moved to Signal, they were all laughing up their sleeve. I mean, anytime something like this happens, Signal, Telegram, all these alternative messaging services see a spike in uh, in user numbers and in signups. Um, you know, the, the, it's great. You know, there's, there's there's alternative social networks. All these services are great, but the problem is you have to have the critical mass of people using them. There's no point in me using Signal for my family messages because I have to then make my parents, my brother, my sister, my my in-laws, all those people all have to sign up to the same service because, you know, otherwise they're going to continue using WhatsApp. So I have to continue using WhatsApp. Um, but I think, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it just proved that at this point now, Facebook has a huge grip on all our lives. Um, and that's even, as I said, before we get into the whistleblower report um, and all those revelations that came out. And, you know, I think it may be, it is time for you to take a look and see, you know, how many of your services are dependent on Facebook and maybe have an alternative. You know, I mean, it doesn't look, this isn't to say everybody should stop using Facebook because it's not going to, it's not going to happen, you know. People will move services as and when suits them. Um, for some people, this will be the, the trigger for them to, to shift away from Facebook altogether. Others will continue using it because they like Facebook and it's convenient and everybody they know is on it. To be honest, I didn't notice that Facebook went down because I didn't even have it on my phone. Um, I didn't notice Instagram went down. I probably would have maybe after working hours, but WhatsApp for me was the killer. That was the one that that really... Um, that messed with my day. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, having an alternative, it's it's no it's no hardship to have an alternative for these services. The problem is, is that for Facebook, you know, it's such a dominant social media platform. Um, I mean, Twitter is, you know, for, for a lot of people is great. Um, Instagram is great, but they all have different focuses. Whereas, you know, Facebook, people use it for friends and family. Twitter is kind of more of a public discussion thing. Uh, Clubhouse is... A, is mainly, you know, people associated with audio, um, you know, Instagram, it's all photographs. It's not the same, you know, there's not the same level of, I suppose, personal conversation that you might find on your Facebook page. So it's actually finding something that's an alternative to that is the problem. And anytime something I suppose has come close, you know, Facebook has changed its services. I mean, like Snapchat was supposed to be the big Facebook killer. Um, and then Instagram stories happened, some Facebook stories happened. So, you know, I, mean, I don't think anybody talks about Snapchat as a Facebook killer anymore. Uh, TikTok is great, but again, it's it has a different focus. Um, and maybe we might find, you know, kind of going forward that people want that different focus, in which case Facebook becomes redundant. But at the moment, that hasn't happened. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the whistleblower. So Frances Hawken worked in Facebook for a significant period of time. She left earlier this year and then leaked a number of documents to the Wall Street Journal. She then did a 60 Minutes interview on US television on Sunday night and then appeared before US Congress on Tuesday. Now, I watched the majority of her testimony. I watched all of the opening statements from the different politicians and a few things struck me. Firstly, 
the the politicians were way better informed than they were the first time Mark Zuckerberg appeared before Congress in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. They actually knew what Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp were. They understood or they appeared to understood uh, to understand elements of the technology. And then also none of the I suppose the allegations or the the testimony that Francis Hogan made surprised me that much I think it was just interesting to hear it being spoken about and being featured as a headline story in news bulletins that that they were my kind of key takeaways what did you make of it Fairly similar. I mean, I think that the, the, the key thing there when you're saying about um, that none of this was, was really news. I mean, did anybody really think that Instagram was making teenage girls feel good about themselves? God, Instagram sometimes makes me feel rubbish about myself. And, you know, I am definitely not a teenage girl. I can only imagine. I, I, I can't even get my head around what it would be like growing up with that. I suppose for a lot of teenagers now, Instagram is our, you know, glossy magazines. Um, I think, though... What was interesting for me is, yes, none of this was new, but all of a sudden people are taking notice because we're talking about teenage girls and anorexia and eating disorders. And that's something that people can relate to. Whereas when this came up before, I mean, it's not that long since you know, Facebook was accused of trying to subvert democracy or something similar or, or stoking, you know, um, supporting authoritarianism. Um, you know, this, I think it was, it's only a matter of months, you know, but this time it's being taken seriously. And you have to ask yourself why. And I suppose it's because people can relate to teenage girls with eating disorders and, you know, and being pushed towards content that could lead to negative self-image. Whereas, it, you know, if you're talking about Instagram maybe stoking or being used as a way of spreading information in support of um, in support of uh, authoritarian regimes overseas, I mean, you know, again, it's that thing of uh, so far removed from people. You know, obviously people in those countries will sit up and take notice. But the issue is that, you know, are you going to get Congress to take notice in the US? Like now they would, you know, they're, they're taking a lot of notice of this. But, you know, I, it's 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 kind of one of those things. It's hard to, to, to pinpoint exactly why it's different now. Um And then at the same time, it's actually, it's, 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 it's not that difficult to see why people are actually sitting up and, and taking notice because as you said none of this is is news to anybody who's been kind of following Facebook over the years I mean it just feels like it's more of the same but now it's got this new focus and it's there's a lot more documentation to back it up and there's all this research that was supposed to well, that was done and you know now there's there's a kind of a I mean, I know it's been compared to tobacco companies and some um, Facebook executives and, and some of the, 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 the kind of the, the leadership team have taken exception to that. But is it really all that different? Because look, we know if you, if you take that comparison, we know that that tobacco is bad for us. We know that cigarettes cause cancer. We know that they were marketed at, a, at you know, that they're marketed in such a way that they appeal to certain age groups Um if you kind of look at it objectively, nobody should touch cigarettes, but yet they, they're still sold. If you look at, at Facebook now, all this, all these whistleblower revelations, you know, that they're, they knew it was harmful to teenage girls. It's, it's marketed in such a way it's to appeal to certain younger age groups. Um, and it's not good for our mental health. And that has come out time and time again. All these studies have shown that social media is not great for your mental health. Instagram is not good for your mental health. And we still use it because like cigarettes, it's addictive. Um, it's just, 
you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you're sure like, yeah, are, are we going to be having this conversation in six months time again? Because I, I kind of feel we will. What I felt about it was that it took the Cambridge Analytica scandal for people to sit up and realise that social media can impact things like democracy. And I feel like it took this whistleblower to showcase this type of research that um, Facebook carried out to put the spotlight on the conversation and really force people to sit up and pay attention to the conversation. And, you know, hopefully something will come from it. A number of the senators sitting in that hearing on Tuesday kind of said, OK, let's get to work. We need to get to work. Let's try and do something. But I can't help but feel like it's a bit of Groundhog Day. Yes, it gained momentum this week. But are we still going to be talking about this, as you say, in six months time, waiting for something to happen? Facebook is 17 years old now. How long do we have to wait before something comes to pass? Do you have hope that something will come to pass soon? Not really. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm in no way optimistic that anything is going to change because, look, part of this, look, we, we, we can... We can blame Facebook for how things are presented. Um, I mean, if you go back to the Cambridge Analytica scandal, I mean, this has been basically been a five-year backlash against Facebook and it doesn't, not an awful lot seems to have changed. I mean, you know, there was moves to make, um, make it, I suppose, make political ads more transparent. Um, there are always, I find there's always ways around things. I think... There can you can make as many changes as you like, but unless you fundamentally change what Facebook is, we're going to arrive back at the same place. You know, mm-hmm. um, the fact that like in those revelations, the fact that you know celebrities were treated differently to the average person. I mean, that was no surprise to anybody that that people who are have a have a platform have you know are, are treated in a different way to like the average person who's spewing you know whatever invective they want. You know, the fact that like. There's anti-vaccination content all over Facebook. Um, the fact that like this, it's just, even when it comes down to like, there are certain, there are certain community guidelines on Facebook. So you can't, there's, there are certain things you can't say. I mean, you can't, you know, basically talk about other, you can't talk about races in a way that's dehumanizing or other, other um, ethnicities in a way that's dehumanizing, um, all that kind of thing. But if you know your way around those community guidelines, you also know how to circumvent them. And it's actually quite difficult to break community guidelines I've found in the past at least now maybe it will change I'm not hopeful but maybe it will change we get to see the worst you get to see the best of humanity sometimes on social media but you also get to see the worst and I'm so tired I don't know about you I am so tired of seeing the worst of people's crappy views on life and you know what people deserve to get and who should be in what place at what time and who deserves to actually live in certain countries and you know you just kind of wonder is this the way they talk to people at home and I actually think that for a lot of people I mean there was a big push there a while back people were talking about you know getting rid of anonymity on social media which I can see why people would want it but I think it's it's also not not the way to tackle this problem the problem is is that you know human nature being what it is you know people are just going to be horrible to each other regardless getting rid of anonymity online is not going to change that because people are quite willing to put their racist, horrible, sexist, misogynistic, anti-everything and xenophobic opinions under their own names on different platforms. And, you know, what all that, that anonymity, reducing anonymity on social media will do is it will silence people who, for whatever reason, 
Um, maybe they live in an oppressive regime. Uh, they can't be themselves. Maybe they work for a company that is doing something wrong and they want to, to kind of get it out there. Uh, it will silence those people. It, it takes away their voice. Uh, it doesn't take away the voice of the racists and the misogynists and the xenophobes and the homophobes, transphobes, the whole lot. It doesn't take away the voice of those people. They will always find their 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 audience. Um, it's just sometimes I, I and it's not just limited to Facebook. I mean, we're talking about Facebook right now, but some of the most disgusting stuff I've seen has been on Twitter. Now, I report that as well. But, you know, who knows? I, I tend not to go back and try and um, find these people afterwards to see what's happened to them. But I mean, like on Instagram, for example, if I block an account now, I can preemptively block any other accounts that that person would, could create. So there is a way to find out, you know, to, to kind of link people's um, anonymous or relatively anonymous identity to other accounts. I mean, if they can do that, surely they can tackle this problem. But you see, what the whistleblower revelations showed us is that, you know, engagement is everything. And people get engaged when they're angry. You know, anger is a human emotion. It's a powerful human emotion. So anger gets people very engaged and they share all sorts of stuff without thinking or without reading or without doing any sort of, of independent uh, kind of scrutiny over what they're sharing because they're annoyed and they share it off to all their friends. And, you know, that's good for Facebook on paper, for Facebook as a platform, it's not. And I, I think, you know, at some point that has to sink in somewhere. I mean, people don't want to use a platform where hatred and, you know, all this absolute nonsense is is the predominant thing, you know, and maybe people aren't, a lot, some people wouldn't see this. Maybe this is a, a surprise to some people because, you know, they use it for interacting with their grannies and their, their aunties and their grandchildren and all that. But, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, if you look at even in, in the States, you know, coming up to, to January 6th and all the QAnon stuff, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who first came into contact with that kind of content on Facebook. And if Facebook wasn't there, Facebook wasn't, the algorithms weren't showing this content to people, would they ever have been, you know, would they ever have gone down the queue and on rabbit hole? And, you know, that's, that's a question, obviously, we can't answer because if, if I did, I have a crystal ball and, you know, be far richer because I'd have the lotto numbers. But, you know, would we, would we be having a lot of these conversations if Facebook didn't exist, you know, I mean, look, when I was growing up, it was all about, as I said, it was the glossy magazines. It was, you know, magazines showing unattainable bodies and retouched, photoshopped bodies. Now it's Instagram, but it's just that the, the reach of this and the, I suppose, the amount of content, it just absolutely eclipses anything I had to deal with when I was a teenager. And I just cannot see any way where this can be turned around. Yeah, like we should acknowledge that Facebook does kind of refute a lot of the allegations made by the whistleblower in the post that Mark Zuckerberg put up on Facebook that uh, I referenced earlier on. I found it really interesting. He said, at the most basic level, I think most of us just don't recognise the false picture of the company that is being painted. And like it is a lengthy statement. I was talking to a colleague about this and my colleague said, does he spend a lot of time on Facebook? Because anyone who does spend a lot of time on Facebook or Instagram wouldn't be surprised by the allegations that were made and it would almost just be like solidifying what we think and what we feel and what we've experienced on these different platforms. I do think there's going to be further conversations about this. I hope that there is change on the way but as you said Kira, I don't think we should hold our breath just yet. Uh, Kira O'Brien from the Irish Times thanks as always for joining us here on News Talk. Coming up next Concept Dairy. 
Tech Talk. Tech Talk. All News Talk. With One Sonic. High definition audio wireless earphones and headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. Welcome back to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com. Concept Dairy is an Irish company that's looking to give farmers better financial security. Dermot McCulgan is the founder and he joins me now. Dermot, you're very welcome to the show. Um, can you just start by giving us a bit of an overview as to what exactly Concept Dairy is? So uh, Concept Dairy is a solution to bring price transparency and fairness across the dairy supply chain. So we do this in two ways. We have a free farmer app and a risk management platform. So the free farmer app gives all dairy farmers access to live accurate milk prices that update daily. So the farmers can see how much their milk is worth for up to two years into the future. And then they can lock in their milk price when it suits them. So the farmer has control. And then in the background, we work with the processors through the risk management platform to help them, first of all, understand and then start managing their risk. So then they can facilitate farmers to get better prices into the future and more security. For those who don't work in this industry and for those who don't understand the full extent of the challenges uh, farmers face, can you just explain the reality of the situation that led to the development of this app? Yes, yeah, so um, my background, I, I was a commodities trader in London for 13 years, uh, trading oil, gas and electricity. And then I, I moved home to Dublin to uh, run trading and risk management for a dairy company. And from that, I figured out the farmers are getting a raw deal. And it was very easy to blame the milk processors, but the milk processors weren't set up to be commodity traders. So from a farmer perspective, so you're a farmer, we're, we're in um, 1st of October today. So you'll be milking for the month of October, but you will have no idea what price you're going to get for your milk until the middle of next month. So that's why we call it the milk price casino. So every farmer works away for the month and has no idea what they're going to get. So imagine going into work and not knowing what your salary is going to be until the middle of the next month. Interesting. Can, can you just sort of talk us through how you decided what the best form factor was for addressing this issue? So it, the dairy markets are quite complex and I've used a lot of my uh, knowledge from the energy sector, from the oil and gas and electricity markets where the prices change every, every 15 minutes um, and applied them a lot to the dairy markets. And because technology is evolving at such a rapid rate, we're able to give the farmers a live price straight to their phone for free. that They can see how much their milk is worth into the future. And these are live, real transactable prices that they get to see every single day. So, and then the other piece of it is the milk processor. We help them digitalize, improve and, and transform their businesses so they can really be in the best position for the future, particularly for Irish milk processors. Because we, as a country, export around 95% of all our dairy product. So we're so exposed to international market prices, but we really need to have the correct tools to take advantage of them when they're high. But also when prices are falling, be able to mitigate against a lot of these, these price drops. And when, when dairy prices drop, they drop so quickly. So how exactly does the tool work? Is it a prediction tool? Is it a charting tool? What exactly is the core function of it and how does it benefit those who need and want that level of clarity? So, so it, what it does is it's a very good question, Jess. It's, it's, it's to give the price, it gives the farmers, they see how much the milk is worth today into the future. And these are the prices they can lock out today. 
So tomorrow, they one thing I can guarantee is the prices will never be the same. They could go up or go down, but it's about being in control of, of their businesses. So let's say, for example, a farmer it has it wants to buy a new tractor or kids are going to college or wants to pay for a wedding, might need to get a loan. Well, actually, I want to lock in my 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 sales price for my milk. So they can go on the app and say, okay, I, I'm happy with that price for the next two years. They click the button and then they lock it in. That goes back to the milk processor and then they confirm it on their side that they're happy to accept that. And then in the background, they will sell the products off the back of it. Yeah, like we're hearing a lot at the moment about shortages and disruption as a result of Brexit and a lot of external factors that are beyond any one person or any one group's control. What happens in those instances where you know that, you know, I suppose world events dictate that things have to change? Great question. Um, another one. Um, one of the great things about once you have locked in your price, let's say for two years, then everyone in the supply chain knows that they have that to deliver that product over those two years. So what that does, that allows, let's say, the the the, the freight drivers know, that, okay, I'm going to pick up this amount of volume from Ireland and deliver it to, let's say, Belgium. And they can contract that for a longer period of time. So that, that the freight company, they can hedge themselves, they can lock in their pieces, they can hire the drivers. And also, so if by, at the moment, dairy is very hand to mouth, and it, they, it's all things, a lot of things happen, let's say, between now and the next three months. They don't really go beyond that period. The, and they, it's about embracing these long-term nature of the contracts. So you have security of supply. So the farmer knows I've locked in my milk price for this, for this. And in the background, they could be selling it to a UK supermarket, to a big blue chip manufacturing company or whoever in the background. But it's about helping the full supply chain from the farmer all the way to the end user and then it goes into a maybe a Mars bar or an ice cream or whatever the product is, or mozzarella onto a pizza, whatever. Mm, the great thing about transparency is that it gives us a greater understanding of the different cogs in the machine. But the reason we sometimes don't always have transparency is because there are some people, some organisations, some bodies that don't want us to have that clarity. Um, has there been any resistance or speed bumps along the way when it comes to trying to deliver that level of transparency? I think w- once at the start, there's a, sometimes it can be a little bit of friction, but when you explain the benefits of having this level of transparency, people really see that it, 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 it helps everybody because at any point in time, if you don't have price transparency, someone's winning and someone's losing. But if you have real transparency, everyone can make an educated call on what's happening and what's right for the business at that point in time. And that's one of the real benefits of having this level of transparency. So, for example, you're going to go to England maybe tomorrow and you can see what the sterling rate is today. And then you say, okay, that's a good price. Or do you take a risk and go to the shop in the the UK, in London, and then you try and pay with euros and accept the rate that the shopkeeper might give you? So it's the same similar level level of transparency. Do you you transparency? change your money before you leave or you take the risk on going to London and hoping that a shopkeeper will accept your euros and give you a decent rate. Yeah, this concept could be rolled out across many different sectors and many different sections of sectors. Why did you decide to specifically hone in on the dairy side of things? Um, Well, dairy is it's a huge industry in Ireland and we have some good sector knowledge here. And also there's like it's quite a complex problem. And because it's such, it's like the dairy industry is worth $756 billion globally. 
So it's a huge industry and it has a large potential to scale. And it is probably probably the least developed from this perspective. If you look at like the coffee, cocoa, sugar markets, they're so well developed. But there is additional complexity in dairy that needs to be addressed. And, and we've managed to, to crack those nuts in, with, with our various systems. I've done quite a bit with um, different agri-tech companies. I've spoken to farmers, spoken to innovators. And one thing I'm always struck by is the level of paperwork and admin that is imperative to every aspect of the food production process. Does Concept Dairy help cut down on the admin or is it very much, you know, focused on the transparency around pricing? Well, it, well, well. It, it is it, we do help with a lot of the admin because a lot of a lot of technology companies are, are selling products into farmers so the farmers have to pay for it we're giving our solution for free to farmers and in terms of admin and all the other all the other elements that they have to do if we can eliminate one of the biggest worries from a farmer um, the financial risk and financial stability then they can probably afford to maybe even pay for an accountant pay for bookkeepers to be able to take off some of that administrative strain on them. And as we're seeing now with sustainability, um, farmers are being asked to do even more environmental sustainability, social sustainability, but everyone is, seems to be ignoring economic sustainability. So how is the farmer going to be able to pay for this? And then, so the tracking that's gonna take place. So from a sustainability perspective, we're working in the background on building sustainability metrics that will automatically be able to be deduced from our system for using artificial intelligence and AI to be able to track the various metrics. So hopefully from that perspective, looking forward, we'll be able to assist in minimizing some of the admin around the sustainability. You mentioned there that you're giving this tool uh, to farmers for free. How and why? Because we believe that I think farmers need to, because they work so hard, they're up at five o'clock in the morning milking cows, and with the, with, with the effect that the milk price casino has on them, potentially, um, we want to do that because I think it's the right thing to do to give them an independent price, price visibility so that they can then ask the question, well, how come we're not receiving these prices? And then, so we, we make our money by selling the software into the milk processors. And then when the, when the farmer decides to lock in their milk price, we'll collect a small margin from the processor for, for providing the service. Does the, the price locking benefit the milk processor as well as the farmer? Very much so. Because if you look at um, how the markets, when they, when they do move, they move very quickly. And if the processor is, is if the farmer hasn't locked out, the, you, you hope that the, the processor has on the other side. But if they haven't, the processor is also fully exposed when the prices drop. And they still have to pay their overheads, their processing margins. That remains pretty much the same, but we're seeing increases in, let's say, fuel costs at the moment. So their, their overheads are increasing as well. So those prices still has to have to be paid. So if they're able to lock out a decent sales price for their products, they'll be able to insulate themselves more against volatility and indirectly it'll be, it, they can pass a better price back to their farmers. Tell me a little bit about the team behind Concept Dairy. We know a bit about your background there, but who do you have working alongside you? So we have Jacqueline, who is very experienced in sales and marketing and ran multi-million pound campaigns for Cancer Research UK on the, in the charity sector, building a, the Francis Crick Institute and also multi-multi-high-level multi, high-donor programs. And then more recently, she was part of the Natural History, History Museum 
working on strategic partnerships with companies such as Samsung, Dell, um, large multinationals, and then helping them. And from, from the inner workings of the Natural History Museum, they've got a huge team working on sustainability, and that was really her first exposure to that. And then she's really great on the sales and marketing element of it and kind of directing and really working about, okay, on, on the overall strategy. And we have some other fantastic team of developers as well that are able to turn stuff around really quickly for us and make changes. And yeah, we've, we've got a great team at the moment. There's seven of us in total. As you mentioned there at the top, the value of the dairy industry as a whole globally is pretty incredible. Do you have aspirations to go after that global market? Yes. So we're starting off in England and Ireland at the moment, but we, we are in conversations with multiple um, processors in the continent. The European market is the largest market and probably the least developed from this perspective. So and then we look to move to the US and, and other aspects and then more into developing markets as we see uh, mobile penetration um, get better and better and more digitalizations and smartphones. Great stuff. Dermid McCallgon, the founder of Concept Dairy. Thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you very much, Jess. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. On News Talk. With One Sonic. High definition audio wireless earphones and headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. Welcome back to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Right across the week here on News Talk, we've been highlighting personal stories about bullying. Darren Kennedy spoke incredibly well on the Pat Kenny show earlier in the week about his own experience. But now here on Tech Talk, we are going to discuss cyberbullying with an organisation that does great work in this space, Cyber Safe Kids. Uh, and Alex Cooney, I'm delighted to say, is back with us. Alex, for those who don't know, will you just remind us uh, what Cyber Safe Kids does? Yeah, sure. So we focus on education primarily and we work with children in primary school, so aged between 8 and 13. And our focus is on really helping them to engage with the opportunities that are there out there for them online, but also the risks that are there and to equip them with the skills to, to, to manage the, the, those risks and to navigate their way around the online world. In addition to that, we also speak to parents and teachers because we feel that children need to be supported and guided on this journey, especially when they're younger. It's, it's so important that they've got that kind of oversight from, from a parent, carer and teacher. I've spoken to yourself and to a number of your colleagues over the years, and I'm a big fan of what you guys do because you come at it from an approach of you like technology, you see the benefits of it, but you just want to give kids the tools, I suppose, to use it in a safe way. And on the 15th of October, you guys are going to be hosting a cyber break. Just tell us a little bit about what that entails. Yeah, so on the 15th of October, we're asking people to take a step back from their devices and from being online and just to take a break, literally for 24 hours, just starting at five o'clock on Friday afternoon uh, and running till five o'clock on Saturday. The idea is to make it as feasible as possible for, for parents to really get involved because we know a lot of children that we talk to will often say, well, do you know what? My parents are online more than I am, you know, so you, know, you need to be talking to them as well. So this is an opportunity to, to take a step back, to reflect on, on our habits and our online habits and to, to think about balance uh, between our offline and online lives um, and, to, and to do things together as a family and to engage uh, in conversations um, about what we're seeing and doing online and, and really just promote that kind of healthier approach to being online. Yeah, it's always good to do a bit of a reset. Um, I can't talk to you and not refer to what we heard earlier in the week 
uh, when a former Facebook employee testified before US Congress about the impact that social media, particularly Instagram, has on young people. This is something that we've spoken about before. What was your reaction when you heard or read some of the statements that uh, Francis Hawken made? I mean, I think it's so important that this stuff is coming out. You know, I, I, I was delighted to see that this research was leaked and I was frustrated that Facebook didn't immediately publish that uh, research just to help the, uh, us understand what, what it, all the, the leaks were referring to. I think we need a lot more responsibility, uh, sorry, a lot more transparency and accountability around these things. You know, this is a largely unregulated sector and, and that in this uh, day and age when there's so much uh, influence and power, that, that just does not work. So I think this is a welcome um, leak and a welcome conversation. We spoke at the time when uh, TikTok introduced a number of measures to try and protect younger users. Do you think that social media companies still have a way to go to ensure that they are responsibly engaging with young people? Absolutely. I welcome all of these changes that are being announced this year in 2021, but I see them largely driven by regulation coming down the track. I think a lot of the changes that we've seen in 2021 are in fact a response to the age appropriate design code, uh, which was which has come into effect in the UK. So I think regulation does work and we need that accountability. We need to uh, encourage companies to act in the best interests of children. Uh, especially companies that uh, you know have so many children on their on their platforms. So these changes are needed. They're welcome. We need greater uh, accountability and regulation and transparency. And all of those things will help to build trust. One of the things that stuck with me um, from the documents leaked by Francis Hawkins was in relation to, and I mentioned it there a second ago, the impact Instagram was having on younger people. For parents listening to this now who may have a young teenager who engages on social media, they, they're probably terrified that their child is living in a different world entirely when it comes to this stuff. So what can parents do to proactively engage with their children to find out if they're okay? I think those regular check-ins are so important. You know, it should be a normal conversation about what they're seeing and doing online. If you think about how uh, involved children are in the online world. You know, from our recent report, we, we found that 93% of children aged between 8 and 12 own a smart device. You know, many of them are incredibly active online. You know, so it's, it's really important that parents are then engaged uh, in their children's online activity, asking questions, checking in, not just about the negative stuff, engaging with them about the positive stuff as well. Also really important that they're checking out any apps or games that their children want to be on, you know, so something like Instagram, is this appropriate for my child? Does my child have the maturity levels to deal with this kind of content? Um, do I have the time to, to keep an eye on what they're doing and, and check in on their you know, friends list, whether their profile is set to private, the kind of people that they're following? You know, this is an ongoing responsibility. And I think it's really important parents are aware of that. Do you think the social media platforms, and I'm talking about all of the ones that we know of that children engage with, do you think they signpost the outlets for help in a clear and concise way. And by that, I mean things like report, block, mute, and following up on the reports as well. No, I don't think there's enough consistency around that at all. Uh, and, and certainly that's feedback we get from children too. So we, we need a much more consistent approach to this. It's that we need much clearer signposting. 
I do welcome the changes and the additional safeguards that have been put in place uh, for the for the younger audiences. But of course, we're, we're, what I'm often referring to is children who are under the minimum age restrictions for these platforms. You know, and I think we need to be thinking a lot more about that as well. You know, the safeguards are there for 13 to 16 year olds, but actually we're often talking about under 13 who are using these platforms, often with their parents' full knowledge, you know? So I think we need to do a lot more to make these environments safer uh, and supportive, and we need a greater degree of parental involvement as well. You've hit on something there that I think is really important, but quite uncomfortable, which is the parental responsibility here. I made the, the point a few times this week that no child comes out of the womb holding a smartphone. It's something that parents give to the child at different ages, different stages. And so there, there does have to be oversight on behalf of the parents to ensure that they understand what the child is doing. Absolutely. I mean, a really good analogy is, is riding a bike. You know, you don't give uh, a three or four year old an adult bike and say, off you go. You, you do a, a, a piece of preparation with that child. You know, you get the, the, the bike with the training wheels, you take them to the park, you use the helmet, uh, you're, you're ensuring that they're in a safe place. You're having constant conversations with them about the rules of the road and, and you know, what they should be doing. At a certain point, you will feel that they're ready to go out the road with you alongside them. And again, those conversations are continuing. And eventually what you're hoping is that you've, you've prepared them sufficiently well that then when they do go out independently, uh, and of course there are so many opportunities for them to do so, and, it, and it's a great benefit to their lives to be able to uh, bicycle independently, you know, that you've prepared them well enough for the risk. So I know it's a simplistic analogy, but we do need to be thinking a lot more about what we need to do to adequately prepare children for the online world you know what skills are they going to need what support are they going to need what oversight you know it's something that we do almost without thinking in, in, in other areas of their lives you know we're preparing them for the risk so that they can make the most of the opportunities that are available we need to do the same thing with with the online world i'm looking at some of the stats from your 2020 annual report and there's one here that says 25% of 8 to 12 year olds have seen or experienced something online in the last year that has bothered them. And 30% of them kept it to themselves rather than report to somebody. They are worrying stats, particularly for kids of that age group. Yeah, this is 8 to 12 year olds. And yeah, when we ask them that question, we're, we're basically saying anything that made you feel scared or uncomfortable or wished you hadn't seen it. That's how we define that question. So a quarter of the children that we surveyed, and it was almost 4,000 of them, came back saying that they had seen something that had bothered them. And then we asked for the follow-up, you know, well, what did you do? And, you know, happily, most children will talk to a parent. So I think just over 50% said they did report it to a parent or carer, which is great and really positive and exactly what they should be doing. But there is this worrying 30% that aren't. And then that, and that is a real concern because then what are they doing? You know, it could be a cyberbullying incident. It could be that someone's made contact with them that's made them feel uncomfortable. What we need is that, they're, uh, that they are supported to resolve that or to move on or to simply block in some cases. But, you know, it's an opportunity for learning. And if 30% of children aren't reporting it, then that's an opportunity lost and potentially a situation getting worse, which obviously we do not want. We often hear stories of parents who go looking for help when their child is targeted by cyberbullying. What can parents do proactively to get ahead of this, you know, so they have the tools if and when it does arise, rather than just reacting when it happens? I think this is part of the ongoing engagement and oversight. You know, you're keeping an eye on what they're doing. You're keeping an eye on friends lists. 
you know you're checking in with them on the conversations that they're having you know you know seeing any differences in behavior uh, particularly around devices or maybe when they've just come off devices you know it's it's those regular check-ins it's, it's like uh, offline bullying in those senses as well you know we need to just notice any changes and check in with them on it with with them on it you know a lot of schools have really good cyber bullying policies in place as well so you know reaching out to the school and and having conversations there if something has happened can be a helpful strategy um, but the key thing is that ongoing engagement those check-ins and and really keeping an eye on what they're doing Okay, so again, you guys are encouraging people to take part in the cyber break on October 15th, but your website is a fountain of knowledge for parents who may be trying to navigate this journey. Um, give us the website once again. Yeah, it's cybersafekids.ie and there's lots of resources there, as you say, and we, we do talks, we've got blogs, we've got quizzes to, to, to help families check in on how well they're doing on online safety. Uh, so we're, we're active on social media with, with lots of tips and advice there too. Uh, so please follow us there. Great stuff. Alex Cooney of Cyber Safe Kids. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. And that is all we have time for this week. Unfortunately, if you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. John Fardy's up next year on News Talk. I'll chat to you next week.